Hello, and welcome to another HeartPod, cardiology podcast for trainees. My name is Dr. Dominic Pimenta, and today we will be talking about the 2018 European Society of Cardiology's guidelines for the management of cardiovascular disease during pregnancy. While not exhaustive by any means, we will try to cover some of the key points as we go through a few cases. Case number one. A 30-year-old woman, 34 weeks pregnant with her first child, presents to your A&E with a two-hour history of central crushing chest pain. Her ECG shows lateral 3mm ST elevation and the cath lab call is put out. As the arriving cardiology registrar, what is the next best step in her management? The first overarching principle of the ESC guidelines is to treat your pregnant patient in the exact same way as you would any other patient. With the above story, any other patient would be heading directly for emergent angiography, and it would be hard to justify any delay to that in the above context. The ESC guidelines on STEMI ACS in pregnancy strongly emphasize the need to treat the mother as priority and with the same clinical care as any other patient. Obviously, there are some specific risks to be aware of. Number one, radiation. The radiation dose during an emergency angioplasty is equivalent to a long-haul flight. The unshielded abdomen receives less than 20% of the total body dose. The risk of fetal malformation at 34 weeks is lowest in the third trimester and highest in the first. The risk of childhood cancer is 1 to 2 per 3,000 for every 10 milligrays of exposure. For example, if the mother receives 50 milligrays of radiation, that is 10 milligrays to the fetus. The guidelines do not recommend abdominal shielding as this may actually increase radiation exposure to the fetus due to scatter of the beam within the shielding. Techniques to reduce radiation dose to the fetus, e.g. avoid abdominal screening, therefore radial access, using a senior operator, taking limited acquisitions versus fluoroscopy, and maximally collimated images. All of this may be helpful, but ultimately the risk to the fetus is low and far outweighed by the consequences of under-treating or delaying treatment in a STEMI situation. Number two, anticoagulation. Heparin and thrombolysis can both be used as needed in acute coronary syndrome. Number three, contrast. There is little evidence that contrast is harmful to the fetus. Number four, dual antiplatelet therapy. This can complicate a birthing plan by increasing bleeding risk and also ruling out any spinal anaesthetic due to the risk of compressive spinal hematoma. Other drug therapies such as beta blockers are considered reasonably safe in pregnancy, but ACE inhibitors and ARB therapy is not. Statins should be used as appropriate. Back to our case. The patient was loaded with 600 milligrams of clopidogrel and 300 milligrams of aspirin and taken to the cath lab. Right radial emergent coronary angiography was then performed. So what is the differential diagnosis here? Type 1 MI, although she seems to have few risk factors, would be unlikely. 
An embolic or myocarditic process could be considered, but the next diagnosis should be spontaneous coronary artery dissection, often and confusingly termed in the literature SCAD, which also is used for stable coronary artery disease, the two of which are very much dissimilar. Unlike SCAD in the general population, the aetology of SCAD in pregnancy is different and thought to be related to high levels of collagen or vascular modifying chemokines such as elastin. The patient was found to have a smooth, non-dominant right coronary artery and a left circumflex dissection extending from proximally and occluding flow into the distal vessel. The management of SCAD or indeed any dissection is not always straightforward, but certainly can often be made worse and not better by underly cautious intervention. Given the ongoing ST elevation and occlusive dissection, the decision was made to proceed to PCI, and three overlapping drug-eluting stents were successfully deployed from the distal to proximal circumflex arteries. She returned to the ward and made a good initial recovery. Three days later, now 35 weeks pregnant, she became suddenly acutely short of breath. Chest examination revealed bilateral crackles and a loud pan-systolic murmur. An urgent bedside transthoracic echo showed severe mitral regurgitation and rupture of the posterior medial papillary muscle. As plans were being made for emergency surgery and transfer, she desaturated further and collapsed with no palpable pulse. CPR was commenced. What is the next best course of action? So-called perimortem caesarean is emergency perimortem delivery of the baby and needs to be performed during CPR in as fast a time as possible, highlighting the importance of always having on-site obstetrics in a high-risk pregnant patient such as this. Perimortem caesarean within four minutes increases the chance of maternal survival likely by relieving IVC compression and improving maternal hemodynamics. Before 24 weeks, IVC compression is limited and the baby isn't viable, so the risk-benefit is not in favour of either mother or child of performing perimortem caesar. If the baby is at a viable gestation beyond 24 weeks, this should be considered immediately in a life-threatening situation. CPR was continued, while an emergency fast boot to obstetrics was put out. After two cycles of pulseless electrical activity, a perimortem caesarean was performed and the fetus successfully delivered. With further adrenaline, return of spontaneous circulation was achieved after five cycles, and on high-dose pressor support, the patient was transferred for emergency metallic mitral valve replacement. Three weeks later, mother and baby were both doing well and successfully discharged home. Ooh, I feel anxious. Let's do an outpatient case. Two years later, a familiar face walks into clinic. Yes, it's our same patient, now a 32-year-old lady, with previous PCI with three stents to her left circumflex and a metallic mitral valve on warfarin. And she wants to get pregnant again. Pre-pregnancy counselling is a big part of the ESC guidelines. The core recommendations are every pregnant patient A has a cardiovascular birthing plan made and agreed before delivery and B their care throughout pregnancy is managed holistically by a pregnancy heart team with a minimum membership of obstetrics, cardiology and anaesthetics. 
Similar to the endocarditis team, these are complex patients with complex overlapping needs, and therefore interspecialty team working is the bedrock for clinical care. The ESC stratifies patients using the modified World Health Organization classification of maternal cardiovascular risk. As a minimum, the ESC recommend an echo, 12-lead surface electrocardiogram and an exercise test, as well as CT or MRI for aortic conditions, and CPEP testing if needed. An exercise tolerance greater than 80% predicted is associated with good outcomes in pregnancy. Other factors including comorbidities, BMP levels, arrhythmia, and intrapulmonary pressures should also be taken into account. The maternal WHO classification is a four-category system ranging from a maternal cardiac risk during pregnancy at MWHO1 of between 25 to 5%, all the way to 40 to 100% risk of cardiovascular complication in the highest category of MWHO4. Examples of the higher risk group conditions. In MHU3, for example, which is associated with a 19 to 27% maternal cardiac event rate, could include the Fontaine circulation if the patient is otherwise well, even moderate left ventricular systolic dysfunction, and the range actually given in the guidelines is 30 to 45%, the lower end of which we would consider severe in the UK moderate mitral or severe asymptomatic aortic stenosis, and Our Lady with a mechanical valve replacement. The highest risk group, MHU4, with a 40 to 100% pregnancy rate, includes but is not limited to pulmonary arterial hypertension, severe left ventricular systolic dysfunction, severe mitral stenosis or severe symptomatic aortic stenosis, vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, severe aortic pathology, and complicated Fontan circulation or compromised systemic right ventricle. The ESC recommends managing MHU34 patients in an expert centre, reviewing monthly and delivering in an expert centre as well. The MHU4 patient's pregnancy is contraindicated and the ESC recommends discussing termination. Certainly something to keep in mind when you see a non-pregnant woman of childbearing age with one of the MHU4 conditions. Back to our lady, she readily has a mechanical mitral valve. In this context, this was operated in a life-threatening situation. But the ESC guidance is clear that in other circumstances, pre-procedurally extensive discussion should be had about the risks and benefits of prosthetic versus biological valve in women who wish to become pregnant in the future. Biological valves are better tolerated but have higher risk of dysfunction in the long term, while prosthetic valves have better longevity but are higher risk due to managing anticoagulation and the risk of valve thrombosis during pregnancy. This lady is MHU3 and on warfarin, and she is adamant that she wants to have another child. After some pre-counselling and adjusting her medications, stopping Ramipril and continuing the warfarin, she goes off to start trying to have a baby. The use of warfarin versus low molecular weight heparin is also worth mentioning here. Vitamin K antagonists cross the placenta and are associated with embryonic defects in the first trimester in just under 1% of pregnancies, an effect which is dose-dependent.
Vitamin K antagonists are generally safer to the mother with a lower risk of valve thrombosis versus low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin. A warfarin dose of over 5 mg is considered high in the guideline. Low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin do not cross the placenta and is generally considered safer to the fetus. The general principles are a full and frank discussion with the mother about the risks and benefits of either regime. The ESC recommends continuing warfarin up until pregnancy with consideration of either continuing warfarin during the first trimester or switching to low molecular weight heparin unfractionated heparin between weeks 6 and 12 to avoid the risk of embryonic defects and then switching back again to warfarin in the second trimester. Sure enough, she returns a few months later to booking. She is referred to complex obstetric care and an individualized cardiac MDT is made with her. Specialist delivery in a specialist center with close monitoring of her INR and anti-10A levels. The guidelines also recommend monthly evaluation including echo for valve thrombosis. The switch to unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin at 36 weeks and then on to IV unfractionated heparin 36 hours prior to delivery as a planned C-section. Around the time of delivery, unfractionated heparin should be stopped four to six hours pre and then restarted four to six hours post-delivery. Active management of the third stage of labor decreases the bleeding risk and medication switches are advised to be formed in hospital. Gladly, this time, all goes well and our lady delivers a healthy baby boy nine months later. Next case. You are called as a blue cord to the maternity suite on a sunny Tuesday morning. You arrive to find a 45-year-old woman of Nigerian background in her third pregnancy, 38 plus 5. She has a background of previous smoking and gestational diabetes. She has become acutely short of breath and is clinically in pulmonary edema requiring 15 litres of oxygen to maintain saturations at 89% and her blood pressure is 120 millimetres of mercury systolic. The obstetric team are planning a crash C-section. A quick bedside echo shows an ejection fraction of 15%, a left ventricular end diastolic diameter of 6.2 centimetres which is severely dilated and a tricuspid annular planar systolic excursion or TAPSI of 0.5 centimeters which is a severely impaired RV longitudinal function. I've made this deliberately extreme to highlight the adverse risk features of peripartum cardiomyopathy, extremes of childbearing age, smoking, diabetes, multiparity and Afro-Caribbean background. Prognostic factors are as above, an ejection fraction less than 30%, a dilated left ventricle greater than 6 cm in end diastolic diameter, and right ventricular involvement. Back to our case. The baby is delivered via C-section while you are still getting the apical views. Watch your elbow there. Our patient is transferred to ICU for presser support and further management. The ICU registrar contacts you for a further management plan. The ESC guidelines use a helpful mnemonic for the treatment of peripartum cardiomyopathy, BOARD, B-O-A-R-D. B is for bromocryptin, O stands for oral heart failure therapy, 
A is for anticoagulation. The R is dubiously for vasorelaxing drugs. And the D stands for diuretics. Bromocryptine has good evidence in peripartum cardiomyopathy and was the subject of a randomized control trial published in 2017. The 2018 guidelines recommend considering bromocryptin in both hyperacute cardiogenic failure in peripartum cardiomyopathy and in the post-stabilization period. Standard oral anti-heart failure medications plus anticoagulation prophylactically and vasorelaxing drugs, specifically nitrates, and diuretics are the remainder. Breastfeeding should be discouraged in severe symptoms. Our Lady was started on levosimendin, diuresed, and started on bromocryptin, 2.5 milligrams once a day for two weeks, plus slow uptitration of ARBs and beta blockers. After two weeks, a repeat echocardiogram showed an improved left ventricular function to 35%, and she was successfully discharged from hospital with outpatient follow-up planned at six weeks. She had no plans for further children. On to our last case. A 32-year-old woman presents to her local hospital with palpitations and a heart rate of 220. She has previously been completely fit and well. Although conscious of the palpitations, she is otherwise asymptomatic with a blood pressure of 120 systolic. As this is a podcast on cardiovascular disease and pregnancy, there are no points for asking for a beta HCG, but good to reflect how often this is part of your standard clinical thinking. To her surprise, it's positive. She is pregnant. The ECG shows a narrow, complex tachycardia. Modified vagal maneuvers fail to terminate, and defibrillation pads are placed in adenosine given. The rhythm terminates. A resting 12-lead ECG shows normal sinus rhythm, no pre-excitation, normal QRS width, and a normal corrected QT interval. As per the ESC guidelines, her physician consults an arrhythmologist. I'm not joking, that is the term in the guidance and also my new favourite word. On their advice, she is taught vagal manoeuvres, given a pill-in-the-pocket prescription for 50mg metoprolol and referred on to her obstetrician. A few months later, you are contacted by her obstetrician. This poor lady has run out of pills in the pocket and has been to her local A&E 12 times in the last two months. The ESC classifies arrhythmia into low, medium and high-risk categories to help determine monitoring and delivery planning. Low-risk arrhythmia is classified as idiopathic VT in a normal heart. Low-risk long QT syndrome, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, atrial fibrillation and Our Lady with paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia, which is likely to be an AV nodal reentrant tachycardia given her presentation and termination with adenosine. Medium risk includes unstable supraventricular tachycardia, VT with a structurally abnormal heart or ICD with structurally abnormal heart, Brugada and catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. High risk life-threatening arrhythmia is considered unstable VT in structural heart or congenital heart disease, unstable VT or torsades in high risk long QT, short QT syndrome, and high-risk CPVT. Just like with other cardiac conditions in pregnancy, this classification is recommended to determine mode of surveillance, delivery location, and preparation. For SVT specifically, the use of preventive antiarrhythmics is recommended where required, with beta blockers and verapamil both safe in pregnancy, excluding atenolol. 
and flecainide or propafenone in wolf Parkinson white. There is a great graph in the guidelines about the safety of many cardiology medications in pregnancy and it's worth consulting. Flecainide and propofone both have limited data but are not contraindicated. Beta blockers have better experience but can cause fetal bradycardia and hypoglycemia. Verapamil, interestingly, appears to be safer overall, but again, the data is based on animals and limited. Despite regular metoprolol, our patient is still troubled by symptoms and is now 20 weeks pregnant. An echocardiogram shows a moderately dilated left ventricle with a mildly reduced left ventricular attraction fraction of 50%. An arrhythmologist review is sought. Given she is now refractory to drug treatment with the suggestion of early LV remodeling, she is referred on for an ablation. The guidelines are explicit in risk management for these patients. Ablation should be considered in the second trimester if possible, performed in a specialist center, and use non-fluoroscopy endocardial mapping systems like CARTO to avoid radiation dosing. Our patient undergoes successful AVNRT ablation and remains symptom-free. She is treated as a medium-risk patient given her mild LV impairment, but by the time of her delivery, her LV function has completely normalized. She delivers a healthy baby girl. So before we finish then, a quick roundup of what has been a selective look at the 2018 ESC guideline on cardiovascular disease. They are well worth a full read just to get a fuller flavour of an area of cardiology that we don't routinely see that often but often comes to us in an emergency or on-call capacity. So the key points then, treat a pregnant woman exactly as you would a non-pregnant one. Remember to check if your patient is pregnant, especially in conditions which are high risk in pregnancy. Radiation dosing is far lower and safer than the layperson expects and this is key to communicate for life-saving procedures. In extremis, remember perimortem C-section in any pregnant patient over 24 weeks. All pre-pregnancy patients should be managed in a dedicated pregnancy heart team with an individualized and expertly delivered birth plan for each patient. Risk in pregnancy is classified by the MHU system 1 to 4. The risk to the mother in category 3 and 4 is extremely high and termination should be considered. Anticoagulation is a delicate issue in pregnancy. Generally, vitamin K antagonists are better for the mum, but low molecular weight heparin is better for the fetus, and there is a substantial grey area between. Bromocryptin should be considered in peripartum cardiomyopathy, and arrhythmias are similarly classified into low, medium, and high-risk patients. Ablation is possible in pregnancy using non-fluoroscopic endocardial mapping kit preferentially. hope you enjoyed listening. I've been Dr. Dominic Pimenta and this has been another Heart Pod.